Good morning, everybody. And um, hopefully you know the drill by now with Matthew 5. Um, unless you are only arrived in the last couple of weeks, most of you, I think, will know what we do at this point, And that is we all get our Bibles out. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen behind. But we're going to read these Beatitudes together. Um, get Scripture into us, declare Scripture out loud. It's very powerful. I'd like us to stand again. There's a lot of up and down, but let's, let's stand. If you're able to stand, if not, just remain where we are. But you're going to... We're going to read out these Beatitudes again together, which come right at the beginning of Matthew 5, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Great, thank you very much. You may take your seats again. So we had a bit of a gap last week with... um, in this particular series, because we had our Cap Sunday last week. So last time we looked at hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This time it's focusing on verse 7, which is, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. But again, before we dive into that, I do just want to make the point again that this list of Beatitudes that we have here is not just a list of to-dos. It's not saying, now go away and be poor in spirit. Go and, go and be meek. Go and do this. Go and, go and do that. This is all about who you are. It's all, about, it's, it's all about who God has made you to be, actually, and who he is still making you to be, and who he will make you to be. It's about your character. It's all about your, what you are like in your inner person, because there's an organic connection between who you are and what you do, how you behave. Doing always flows out of being. We will always act out of what we really believe. No matter what we say we believe, we will always, in the end, behave according to what we actually believe deep down. And so we mustn't ever think of the Bible, think of this, think of the Word of God as just being kind of a manual for life, a rule book. You know, certainly there are lots of commandments in here, but actually we, we, we need to use this a bit like a mirror. And I, I don't know about you, but I suspect for most people, unless you're particularly vain, when you look in the bathroom mirror, it can create a slight sense of dissatisfaction sometimes. Um, Maybe because there's something glaringly obvious that, you know, like, why did nobody tell me I had ketchup on my cheek? That was at lunchtime. Nobody has told me. Or, or you know, spinach stuck in my teeth or something like that. Obviously, I would, that would never be a problem for me. No. <laughs> spinach is not something I would generally eat. Um, kind of watery green mush. It's... Anyway. Um, or, you know, look at that boil on my forehead everybody's probably been staring at that all day and I wasn't aware that it was there. Or, or it might be that when you just look a bit more closely, you find things that you don't really like. So, you know, a white hair. Um, and I know for some of you, you're well past that stage. But um, <laughs> a white hair or a wrinkle or you just spot suddenly there's this really long hair coming out of your nose or your ears or <laughs> something like that. Or maybe for some of you, it's just your whole face. That... Um, causes dissatisfaction, but the word of God is like a mirror for the inner person, 
not for the outer, for the inner person. It helps us understand ourselves, and it, it, it tells you who you are in relation to God. And that is both a source of rejoicing and dissatisfaction. Because before the Bible tells you what you should do, it will always tell you who you are. So you look at any of Paul's letters, you look at, for example, his letter to the Ephesians, six chapters long, he spends the first half, the first three chapters, establishing their identity in Christ, who you are now in Christ, the glorious truth of that, before going on to the application, and therefore, therefore, because of this, this is what you should do. Not do this to become like that. So the Bible tells you the glorious truth of who you now are in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you are, if you are born again. It tells you that you're a saint and, and that you have the righteousness of Christ. I mean, just let that sink in for a minute. It's, it's, it's incredible that you have a new heart. You have a new spirit. You are a new creation. You participate in the divine nature. You're united with Christ. You, you are seated in the heavenly realms with him. I mean, these are glorious things. These are too, too wonderful for us to really grasp, but they're glorious, glorious truths. And if we're to grow as Christians, that, that's the kind of truth that we need to get hold of and really believe and act out of that. Start to live out of that. Know who you are. Know who God says you are. Know your identity in Christ. Our doing will always come out of who we are. So we can rejoice in that truth, but a little bit like the bathroom mirror, it can also bring a sense of dissatisfaction as we gaze into this mirror of, of God's word, of, of the Bible, and we become more aware of our shortcomings. And, and our failings. But you know, that is a godly dissatisfaction that should drive you back to God. It shouldn't bring condemnation. If it brings condemnation, that's not from God. If it, it shouldn't just drive you to try harder and strive harder in your own strength. No, that's not of God. But it should drive us back to God in desperate need. Help me, Lord. Help me. Because I want to be more like you. Well, these beatitudes that we're becoming very familiar with now... They're no different in revealing the character of a Christian that we can kind of hold up in front of us like a mirror. And where we see shortcomings, as I'm sure we do, that should drive us back to God, back to our need of him, which is exactly how the Beatitudes start in the first place. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's what being poor in spirit is like. And if you remember from last time, when we looked at the structure of the Beatitudes, those two groups of four, and how the first three Beatitudes really are expressions of emptiness, And an acute awareness of that emptiness leads you to mourning over your sin, leads you to meekness, which does away with defensiveness and and standing on your own rights. And then, of course, that awareness of emptiness leads us to the hungering and thirsting that we see, hungering and thirsting for righteousness in verse 6. And and then the next three Beatitudes show you what happens when you are filled. It shows you the nature of that righteousness, what it looks like, and it's mercy, purity of heart, and peacemaking. Spurgeon calls the Beatitudes a ladder of light whereby every one of them rises above and out of those that precede it. So to focus in on today's beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Well, I guess the first question is, well, how, how does the heart, how does your heart become merciful? Well, we see, I've, kind of, I've kind of just answered that, but at the, so at the risk of repeating myself, we see here that mercy, the merciful heart, comes first from a heart that is aware of and acutely felt its spiritual bankruptcy. And it's a heart that is grieved over its sin. And a heart that has become meek, so much so that it cries out in hunger and thirst to be filled with what we are lacking, what we see we are lacking, which is the righteousness of God that we need. And then, then, when you are filled, when you get filled, 
you realize that this blessing that you have received, this blessedness, is itself purely the result of God's mercy to you. Because you didn't deserve this, and you don't deserve this. So your heart, in response to that, becomes merciful. This is how this works. Mercy comes from mercy. So the key to becoming a merciful person, to having a merciful heart, is to be a broken person. Knowing that you owe everything you are and everything you have to God's mercy. And when we look at this mirror of the Beatitudes, and we realize that maybe we're not as merciful as we would like to be, then that should drive you back to God. Drive you back to God. Increasing your poverty of spirit again. Increasing the mourning over sin. Increasing the meekness. Increasing the hunger and thirst to be filled with that righteousness. And therefore increasing mercy as we get filled again. You remember the paradox that I spoke about last time. That the more we hunger and thirst, the, sorry, the more we are filled, the more we hunger and thirst. Because we become more aware as we are filled, as our eyes are open, we become more aware of our deep need for him, our dependency on him. And we kind of see ourselves clear, more clearly as well. So again, mercy is just one facet of the character that is described here in the Beatitudes. It depends on all the others and it reinforces and feeds all the others. So, what does a merciful person look like? What, what is a merciful heart? What do we mean by that? Or what does Jesus mean when he describes being merciful here? Well, of course, it's helpful to know what else Jesus said about mercy. So I'm going to take you to three different passages of Scripture. Um, and interestingly, interestingly, in each one, we actually see mercy defined by contrasting it with its opposite. So you'll see what I mean as we go on. So first, we're going to look at Matthew 9. Verses 10 to 13. If you have a Bible, do turn there. If not, again, it will be um, on the screen behind me. So Matthew 9, verses 10 to 13, says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I love it when he says that to the Pharisees. Go go away and do a little Bible study, okay? I'm going to give you some homework to do. Go, Go away, learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So here, mercy is contrasted with sacrifice. That's what Jesus is saying contrasting mercy with sacrifice. And Jesus, when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, he's quoting from Hosea 6, quoting from the Old Testament. And what that refers to is God saying to his people, listen, I'm not interested in your empty religious rituals because you only do them out of duty. You only do them so it makes you feel good about yourself. You only do them so you feel like I owe you something. But your hearts are cold. Your hearts are cold towards me, they're cold towards each other, and they're cold towards those in need. There's no love, there's no mercy in your lives. I'm not interested in the things that you do. And he says, your love is like the mist. Your love is like the dew on the grass. It's there for a moment, and then it's gone. It's it's just disappeared. He wants his people to be alive in their hearts, with love in their hearts towards him and towards each other. But here we see the same contrast played out in Matthew 9 where Jesus sees these people, the tax collectors and the sinners. You know, if you like, these are the despised people. These are the dregs of society. These are the ones that people don't really want to associate with. 
he sees these people as being people in desperate need of compassion and in desperate need of mercy, that they were sick, and actually he had the answer. He had the medicine that they needed. All the Pharisees saw, they didn't see the people and their need, all the Pharisees saw was the ceremonial problem of being contaminated by such people. Uncleanness. You can't be near such people because they will contaminate you. So their obsession with religious rules caused them to lack love and lack mercy. Jesus has read the same scriptures as they have, but there's a fundamental heart difference here. Well, how do you treat people like that? People in our day who might be considered the despised, the dregs of society, the ones you might want to just steer clear of, how do you think of people like that? Or how do you treat the moral failure of others? So, for example, somebody comes to you to disclose something they've done which they're really ashamed of. You know, how do you react when somebody, if somebody does that with you? Even if out loud you don't say, I can't believe you did that. What does your heart say? What is your heart saying? Do you respond in your heart in a, a, a kind of a pharisaical, self-righteous, superior way? You know, thinking to yourself, I, I would never do something like that. I, I would never live my life like that. That's disgusting. Do you respond in that kind of way? Or do you see people as Jesus sees them in desperate need of help and compassion, in desperate need of mercy. Because, you know, showing mercy doesn't equal condoning the action. Jesus never, ever condoned sin when he hung around with sinners. But he had compassion on them. He said, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And, of course, by the righteous there, he's not talking about the righteousness of God that we talked about last time. He's talking about self-righteousness. He's talking about the religious, those who think they don't actually need God because they're okay on their own merits because they're good people and they keep the rules and all of that sort of thing. That kind of self-righteousness, Jesus is saying, is the enemy of mercy. We see it again in Matthew 23. So if you've got your Bible, just turn to Matthew 23. We're going to look at verses 23 to 24. And Jesus here is talking to the religious leaders and he's having a real go at them. He's saying, woe to you. Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. I'd love to be there to see how he, how he says this. You hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cream. He's like he's saying, well done. Yeah, really good. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. So we learn the same thing in this passage here, that according to Jesus, the enemy of mercy, the obstacle to mercy, is the preoccupation with religiosity, with religious gnats straining out the tiny things at the expense of completely ignoring the more important. He's saying your, your obsession with religious gnats causes you to ignore the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. I wonder, could it be that sometimes he says to you and me, you hypocrites. You hypocrite. You know, you, yeah, you feel good because you tithe, and, and particularly because you tithe your gross income and not your net income, but your hearts are cold. What good is a tithe if you lack love and you lack mercy? Now, am I saying we shouldn't tithe? No. But this is a heart issue, isn't it? It's like Jesus said, you should practice the latter without neglecting the former. So do you have any religious gnats in your life? Any self-righteousness? Maybe where 
sticking to a religious rule, sticking, doing something you do makes you feel acceptable to God, makes you maybe feel a little bit better than others. Or maybe where you, a religious objection to something puts a barrier, puts a separation between you and others. Others who desperately need to know the love of Jesus just as you do. So here's one for you. And this is not intended to be offensive in any way, and it's not intended to be controversial or anything like that, but just what would you do if a family member or a friend invited you to celebrate with them their same-sex union? You get invited to a gay wedding. And for you, your interpretation of the Bible, that your theological conviction is that homosexuality is not something you particularly you agree with or you, you see as something to be celebrated. And this is not having a go at gay people, by the way, in any way. It's just painting a scenario. In that kind of situation, and you could slot other situations in here as well. You know, this is Halloween might be an example, a topical example. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to go to that one. But do you stand on a religious objection and stay away? Or do you overcome that if there's something more important at stake? And by the way, I'm not being prescriptive here. I'm not telling you how you should respond because it depends on the circumstance. And there are lots of things that could be different. So not least how close the relationship is with the person who's inviting you. Okay? But the reason I raise this particular example is because we faced exactly this situation with a family member. Not, not an immediate family member, but a family member. And our conclusion in our situation was that we loved her. And... And we wanted her to know that. And we weighed up what staying away would communicate. We loved her. We wanted her to know our love. We wanted her to know actually the love of Jesus. And so we decided we would go. Now, did we change our theology? No. Did, was it completely comfortable for us? No. But for us, there was a far weightier matter at stake here. The relationship with the person was far, far more important than any religious objection I might have. And I just think it's good for us to examine our hearts and and see where maybe we have that kind of a religious objection to something which actually puts at stake relationship. It's really not as important as you think. And it's that kind of empty religiosity. That's the enemy of mercy. That's the enemy of love. Now, this is further illustrated in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. So we'll be very familiar with this one. So this is in Luke 10. And it goes like this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which means this is most likely a Jew, when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, and here's here's the line, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is saying the same thing as Matthew 9. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Well, here, Jesus says, go and show mercy like the Samaritan did, not like the priest and the Levite. And the priest and the Levite here stand for the same thing as that word sacrifice in Matthew 9. Empty religious formalism. Religious gnats. So Jesus contrasts in three different places mercy with its opposite. And so we learn something about mercy there. But actually, what do we positively learn about mercy as Jesus sees it from this parable? Well, first of all, we notice that mercy sees distress. Mercy spots distress. The Samaritan saw him. But it goes a lot further than that, of course, because it brings a response. The priest and the Levite also saw him, but then they ignored him. It brings... Seeing distress brings two responses from the merciful heart. First, an internal response of compassion and pity. Your heart is moved. Your heart is stirred by what you see. It says, when he saw him, he took pity on him. But that also leads to an external response. It leads to action. It leads to a practical effort to relieve the distress. He bandaged him. He took him to an inn. He looked after him. And then the final thing that we can observe about mercy here, in this particular example, is that mercy crosses boundaries of religion, race, ethnicity, social class, whatever, whatever other boundaries there might be. Mercy acts even when the person in distress could be considered an enemy because that's what Samaritans and Jews were. They were enemies. So the merciful person spots distress, sees where there is need. The merciful person has a heart of compassion, a heart of pity, and then seeks to help seeks to relieve the distress or the need, even when the person in need might be considered an enemy. That is mercy, as Jesus defines it. That is mercy. So, do you see that in yourself? Do you see it in yourself, even for enemies, even for people you don't like? Where do you have opportunities to show mercy in your life? At work, at school, in your neighbourhood, in the town, in society? Where do you have opportunities and do you take them? Are you, and are you aware actually of where you don't take them? Are you too busy or too self-absorbed to help others as I sometimes find that I am? By the way, beware of pride here as well. That's why I said at the beginning, this is not about a, do, a to-do list. This is not about, right, now go and do something merciful so you can tick the mercy box Done that, yeah, I'm merciful now. No, 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 that's, that's what the religious do. That, that's what Jesus is saying is the opposite of mercy. Don't do that. You know, or I'm going I'm to sign up to help with Wickham Homeless Connection and then I can feel better about myself. No, 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 no. Please do help with Wickham Homeless Connection, but for the right reasons. Because it comes out of a heart of mercy, not out of trying to earn mercy. Not out of trying to tick that box. In the third century, there were terrible plagues in the Roman Empire, and people would do anything, obviously, to, to, to avoid the possibility of infection. These were terrible, terrible diseases. So those infected were just left to die. They were just left you know, to suffer, to die alone. No help, no care given. But it was noted by those in authority that while most people, while the pagan people were throwing their loved ones out onto the street before they were dead, at the first sign of infection, 
The Christians were the ones who stayed, and they went in to help the sick and help the dying, to nurse them, to ease their pain, to minister the love of Christ to them, to give them what they had. That's, and of course, that's at the risk and what actually happened of contracting the disease themselves and many of them dying themselves. Now, that's extraordinary mercy. That is supernatural mercy. That's the type of mercy that Jesus is talking about here. It's supernatural. And it's driven by um, the security they had in the eternal life that was to come. And wanting others to know that, wanting others to have that as well, to share that with others. And it was driven by a heart that had been changed by Jesus. Then in the fourth century, the Roman emperor, Julian, who was actually who was zealously anti-Christian, he was particularly bothered as he wrote to somebody in a letter, uh, his observation that these Christians not only look after their own poor, but ours as well. This is showing us up, it was his point. We need to do something better because they're showing us up. Mercy that crosses boundaries. You know, mercy is powerful. Mercy will cause ripples in our society right to the top. Mercy can change society. And when Christians and when the church are consistent and wholehearted in showing mercy to those who need it, whether that's coming to a friend's aid or it's addressing the huge societal problems we face of homelessness, of debt, all those things, and the things that, some of the things that we're involved in here, small scale or large scale, it's a picture of Christ. Mercy is a picture of Christ. And mercy and justice for the poorest and neediest in society is a theme that runs right throughout Scripture, and it's something that burns in God's heart, and so it needs to burn in our hearts too. The church should be known for its mercy, for, for, for how it helps the neediest. I wonder if you've heard of Sir Nicholas Winton. You may have heard of him because he died very recently in July at the age of 106, and he had quite a story. And his story, while not a specifically Christian example, I've, I've, I've put this in today because it, I think it, it, it illustrates the power of mercy, and it's also particularly appropriate for today on Remembrance Day. So in 1938, just before the Second World War, Nicholas Winton was on holiday in Czechoslovakia, and he, had all these, he met all these Jewish families who came to him and said they were terrified, absolutely terrified of what was going to happen, because they had seen the rise of Hitler, the Nazis, they were terrified. And they were pleading with him to help them get their children out of the country to safety. And so he said, okay, well, I'll do what I can. And so he wrote to um, various governments around the world. It was only the British government, actually, that responded and said, yes, we will take the children. And so he put adverts in newspapers, pictures of the children, and various British families, I think 664 families in total, responded to say, yes, we will, we will take these children. And so they were transported by train. It was called the Kinder Transport. And the last train that had something like 250 children on, it never made it out because war broke out. And so it never got out of the country. So, and all of those who were left behind and all the families of those who had escaped died in the Holocaust. But the ones who got out survived and they were looked after in Britain. Now, Nicholas Winton, he basically forgot about this because war came and went. He was involved in that. His life went on. He just forgot about it and he didn't really tell anybody about it until 50 years later when his wife found a suitcase in the attic. And there, inside there's all these pictures, old pictures of children and documents and all this. And she said, what's, what's this? And, and he explained oh, that was something I was involved in in 1938. Now, some of you will remember Esther Ranson's program, That's Life, from the 80s. You may remember that. Um, but anyway, she got hold of this stuff, and she used the documentation to trace some of these children who had been transported. She traced 221 of them in total, and she did a program for Nicholas Winton. Who, she didn't tell him what was happening, 
He was just sitting there in the studio audience. And these children, many of whom were now in their 60s, they had never had a clue, never had any idea about who it was who had rescued them. Can we play that video now, please? Not that one. Here is the list of all the children. This is Vera Diamant, now Vera Gissing. We did find her name on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton. Hello. <laughs> and it was just so wonderful, so terribly, terribly touching. in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton. If so, could you stand up, please? Mercy is extremely powerful. And we may never know the full extent of how an act of mercy has changed somebody's life, or indeed has changed society. He never knew until that moment what had happened to the children that he had been part of rescuing. But it turns out there's something like 7,000 people alive today who wouldn't have been, you know, children, grandchildren, who wouldn't have been alive but for that act of mercy. So mercy is powerful and it's far-reaching. One last point to deal with with this beatitude is that the beatitude says blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy so what does that mean does that mean that if i'm merciful then god will be merciful to me and if i'm not merciful that he won't be merciful to me then now of course it can't be that that can't be what it means because that would contradict the rest of scripture that would you'd you'd have to do away with the whole doctrine of grace no one would ever no one would ever receive mercy on those terms. It would be salvation by works. It would be earning mercy through mercy. And earned mercy, of course, is a contradiction in terms. Because if mercy is earned, it's not mercy, it's, it's a wage. And you know, you're not going to stand there before God on the day of judgment and produce a timesheet and say, look at all the mercy I did, now pay up, God. Pay me what you owe me. That's, that's not going to happen. That's what the religious do. That's the attitude of the religious God owes me for my sacrifice of doing right. But Jesus would say, as he's sitting there eating with sinners, he would say, no, 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 take your eyes off your own self-righteousness. Look away from your own sacrifices and look instead at my sacrifice. Now, there's no hint here, in spite of how it's worded, there is no hint here of, of earning God's mercy. The merciful person described here 
is already blessed. It says, blessed are the merciful. It's already a blessed person. We only show mercy because we have received mercy ourselves and because we're confident that we will continue to receive it. And then, of course, on the flip side of that, if you never show mercy to anybody else, it just shows you haven't understood the mercy by which you've been saved or that you've never actually received it in the first place because you judge a tree by its fruit. The fruit doesn't give life to the tree. The fruit shows that the tree has life. It's evidence of the life that is already there. Mercifulness doesn't earn mercy from God. It comes out of receiving God's mercy already. It's a fruit that grows out of that new life that Christ has given us. Doing always flows out of being. You act out of who you are. And of course, the supreme example of mercy is that God saw the pitiful state that we were in completely unable to help ourselves. We were enemies of God. We were hostile to him. We were at war with him. We were lost in our sin, and we had a debt to God. I mean, we talked about debt last Sunday, but we had a debt to God that no repayment plan could ever help with. But then out of love, God was moved to action, and his son, Jesus, came, Emmanuel, God with us. He came to pay our debt on the cross, and to save us, to rescue us from ourselves. And not only that, he didn't just pay off our debt, cancel the debt, and then leave us to it. He rose from life so that we can rise to life with him, and we're guaranteed a glorious inheritance, a glorious future. And it's when we realize that we are first recipients of God's mercy, when we are born again, that it changes our heart, and it changes the way we look at others. That, that we realize what it actually means to love our neighbor, and to treat others as we would wish to be treated You know, it's God's mercy to you that you would become poor in spirit and emptied of your pride. It might not feel like it at the time, but it is his mercy to you that you would be emptied of pride. It's his mercy to you that your heart would be broken and contrite over your sin. It is his mercy to you that you would become meek with a correct perspective of yourself in relation to God, doing away with defensiveness and self-righteousness. And it is his mercy to you that you would hunger and thirst for righteousness and then be filled. It's all about God's mercy. We get nowhere without the mercy of God. It's all about his mercy. Now, the person described here in the Beatitudes is a blessed person. This is a blessed person. And there are many wonderful promises attached to that that, are, that have been fulfilled and are being fulfilled and will be finally and perfectly fulfilled one day. But when you hold up the mirror of the Beatitudes, what do you see? When you consider mercy... What do you see? Because where you see lack and where you see shortcomings, may it drive you back to God, not out of guilt, not out of condemnation, but in desperation for more of him, for more of him in your life. But also, don't just see lack and shortcoming when you look in these Beatitudes. Look and see in this mirror the person that God has created you to be, the person he has made you to be and is making you to be and will make you to be. Rejoice in the glorious truth of what he has done and the mercy and the grace he has extended to you, utterly undeserved, and consider the glorious truth of your new identity in Christ and then live out of that. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Amen.